Welcome to the Gottesdienst crowd, where we foster confessional integrity, liturgical preservation, and preaching that doesn't stink. We believe that the historic liturgy of the divine service is more than mere cobwebs of antiquity, but it is a true treasure of the Church to be dusted off and brought down from her attic to be enjoyed. So let's get dusting. Welcome back to the Godestine's Crowd. This is Jason Broughton. Today we have back with us for another round at looking more deeply into the scriptures, uh, Carl Fabritius. Welcome back, Carl. Good to be with you, Jason. So one of the recurring themes that uh, I've noticed in our discussions on the podcast, and then even when you make presentations at a Godestine's retreat or a conference, is you, you continually hammer home about reading the scriptures more deeply. And and what I take away from that is this idea that we should listen more carefully to the accounts and not let uh, seemingly small details uh, uh, go unnoticed and not let the upfront thing uh, dominate our, uh, you know, dominate the our understanding of things. And so so often the case is we we can get so wrapped up in what is plainly set forth that we miss kind of the the rest of the treasures that are kind of buried there. And if there's one case uh, I think that you're going to try to make here it is that we do that with the account of Jephthah in Judges 10 through 12 that we focus uh, too narrowly on the vow and not on everything else that is going on. So take us through, Jephthah. What are we missing? Well, just to remind everybody, because I think people forget about this, he's there in Hebrews 11. He's part of that great cloud of witnesses. He's commended as a man of faith, right alongside of uh, several others. Of course, Abraham's in that list, and you've got the whole listing that of people and so when you have that mention of him you got to take him a little bit more seriously than just some vow that he makes that everybody gets sidetracked on so you need to look at the narrative as a whole is always my argument and i even see this one kind of starting back in chapter 10 where uh 10 verse 2 you already get a gileadite as a judge because this is all going to be about gilead and uh Jephthah himself, a Gileadite, and then you've got mention of the fact this guy has 30 sons and 30 donkeys, which is a weird thing, I know, and I'm not going to go in deep on that. That's not the main thing. But notice how if you jump ahead to 12, 8, and 9, suddenly you've got another judge, Ibsam, and in that case, he's with Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem is, as soon as you see that, you have to think about is that connected in with what's going on? Your mind should start thinking in terms of why is Jephthah in between these two accounts, both of them mentioned these two judges, both who had the 30 in them, and then here's his story. Well, then you get the fall of, uh, and the rest of chapter 10, you have the whole Israel going after all the gods. Now, there's a lengthy list of gods here in 10 verse 6. So as if we don't want to leave any of the ones that they're worshiping out. I mean, they've got Baals, Asherahs, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the people of Ammon, Ammon, who's going to be uh, in part of the Jephthah narrative, and the gods of the Philistines. So they've got all these gods they've taken after, and many of them, by the way, involve virgin sacrifice, taking daughters and requiring them to be sacrificed at times. So that's hanging around in the background. The people are oppressed then. And then finally, they say, we have sinned in 10 verse 15. And um, they put away the foreign gods. Now, that's always kind of, we could debate, did they put them all away? Probably not. Sort of a mix of things going on there. Uh, because we don't tend to put our gods away. I think it's a kind of brutal reminder to us that we on the one hand, we say we repent, we turn away from those things. On the other hand, we sort of are clinging to the things of the world around us. Um, we don't have our little statues and all that, but we've got all of our, you know, I mean, 
there'll be the great worship service coming up this weekend when people will just act like the world turns around some Super Bowl game. There's, <laughs> you know, there's all these sort of worship experiences we tie ourselves to that are totally different than, say, throwing our children in the fire, although you could talk about the elections and the what's going on in our country, the way that people want to cling to abortion as if it's such an important thing. Mm-hmm. So the gods of the land around us are always there sort of coming at us. And uh, then you find the Ammonites gathering because they're going to go to war and they encamp even in Gilead. Now, Gilead is to the east of the Jordan, to the west is Ephraim, and of course Judah and everything. Mm-hmm. It's between those two rivers, uh, the Arnon and the uh, Jabbok. And of course we remember the Jabbok, or should remember the Jabbok, because you've got that Jacob. account of uh, Jacob and the wrestling. You hear these names and things should kind of pop into your head about this whole region, even the fact that Mitzpah is there and Gilead. If you go back to um, Genesis, you have the naming of Galid, and that's in this region as well as Mitzpah. It involves um, Jacob and the erection of a, uh, of a post, a little altar area, where he and Laban have a witness between them. They promise not to cross these lines, and God is ultimately the witness between them. So the story is back there kind of in the background uh, long before this of where Gilead comes from and the importance of the witness between. Uh, And then you have people wondering, who's going to fight for us? They're debating this. And Jephthah the Gilead, Gileadite is introduced right away. Well, he's a mighty man, but (laughs) there's the but there. (laughs) He's the son of a prostitute or of a harlot, depending on your translation, which uh, not the kind of guy you'd expect to be a leader. And yet here's sort of a tradition of Israel too. I mean, before this you had Gideon and he had a concubine and his, his son by the concubine, Abimelech, wants to be king and kills all the other sons of Gideon, mm-hmm. except the one, of course. So you've got this story following the Abimelech narrative. There, it just is a nice tie-in, a reminder as well of the history of the um, Israel in terms of going back to the fall of the walls of Jericho, and a harlot is involved. So <clears throat> the history of harlots, the history of how they're involved, and looking forward, of course, to the days of Christ and his encounter with Mary Magdalene and you know, with the women who are disgraced often, and how this becomes part of the narrative, you have to, all these sort of stories should be part of what you think about when you hear about Gilead and Jephthah the Gilead being the son of a harlot. And uh, of course, Jephthah's thrown out of the house because much like the account of Joseph where there was a favorite, the brothers uh, who are the sons of the one mother don't like the fact that the father has found another woman. They cast him out because he's the son of another woman. The same kind of dispute in the household of, of uh, Joseph, I should have said it, in the household of Israel, where you've got all the sons. And it's really, they're defending their mother. I mean, <laughs> they don't like the fact that this upstart Joseph is there. So with Jephthah, the same thing. So he flees from his brothers, in this case, goes off to land a little bit north of Gilead and um, gathers these fighters around him, kind of just jerks, you know, sort of the outcast of the land. I mean, Jephthah himself, an outcast, and they, they gather around him. And uh, then the Ammonites come to make war. And the uh, Gileadites turn to Jephthah, of all people. After all, he's kind of known as this outcast. He's gathered these guys who are kind of rebels and fighters around him. And they want him to be their commander. An odd choice because they threw him out of the house. (laughs) But you see the same kind of distress in the days of... uh, Joseph, um, you see verse 7. I like this fact. He says, did you not hide, hate me? 
and expel me from my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? Now that word shows up in relation to the distress of the brothers who come to Egypt looking for assistance as well. These little stories and how they kind of fill in gaps. So you've got a situation again where, yeah, they hated him. And the brothers Mm -hmm. of Joseph had hated him. He put them through a test. In a certain sense, Jephthah sort of tests these elders of Gilead who come to him. And they say, well, you know, we want you to do the fighting. We'll make you the head over all of Gilead. And he says, well, if you take me back home to fight, then, and the Lord delivers them to me, shall I be your head? There's the key phrase, I think. It gets wound into there. The Lord delivers them. He doesn't say, and I deliver you from them. He specifically confesses that the Lord will be the one who delivers. And I think that's right away tells you that he is a man of faith. He has heard the word. Is he confused and maybe a little bit like us? (laughs) Yes, but the faith is there. He believes firmly in the God of Israel. And so the elders of Gilead say to Jephthah, the Lord will be a witness between us. Now, here's another one of those tricky words. In English, it's witness. But it's actually, they use the term hearer in Hebrew. The Lord is going to be a hearer between us. Now, they could have used the word aid, which actually is witness. Uh, They don't do that. Instead, you have hearer. So the Lord is going to be the one who listens to the words of both of them. It's similar to what happened in terms of Jacob and Laban, where the Lord is ultimately the judge between them. He hears what they say. So basically, they're going to make vows before the Lord, both of them. So there is another vow, you could say, going on here, Mm. that they're going to speak their words before the Lord. And in fact, you have Gilead or Jephthah doing exactly that. He goes with the elders and they make him head. They say those words. And then Jephthah speaks all his words before the Lord in Mitzpah. And Mitzpah means the place of judgment. And uh, so that judgment, even as there was to be a judgment back in that Laban and Jacob account, and the Lord would be the judge. So even here, they go to Mitzpah, and Mitzpah was the same place of the agreement because it was not only called Galid, it was also called Mitzpah. So it's this place of agreement and the word spoken before the Lord. So all this points again to the centrality of faith, the way Jephthah and the people go to the one who matters. They speak to the Lord, who speaks to them, by the way. He had spoken to them back in the previous chapter. I didn't go into that, but it says, the Lord says to the children of Israel, did I not deliver you from the Egyptians? Takes them back and from the Amorites and from the people of Ammon and from the Philistines, all those people's gods they were worshiping, the Lord had delivered them. Not those gods that they were worshiping. Those had been conquered by God. And that's very important for this narrative. So then the king um, gets involved um, because the Ammonites come to fight. Uh, Jephthah sends messengers to the Ammonites. Before you before so you move ahead. on, I just wanted to see. So it sounds like you're saying that this is the greater vow, and the that we should really concentrate on not all the silly vows that so often we make, whether it's at New Year's resolutions or after we sin, I'll never do this again, all that. This is the greater vow, the greater commitment that is set forth and then upheld in the book of Hebrews. And I think this is the key, what you just said, it is really the important part of the vow, because after all, the narrative now is going to go on. Show him being faithful, the spirit of God involved, the victory over the enemy, even the the weird thing that's good. Well, I'm not going to jump ahead yet to that, but all along, it's the mm-hmm. fact that everything is rooted in his faithfulness to the Lord, his desire 
to serve the Lord, to give credit to the Lord for the victory, if he gets that victory, even as Gideon, sort of weakly, uh, was much saying it would be the Lord's victory, not his. Um, so it must be here as well. And so this is why he's there in yeah. Hebrews. So you've got, um, you kind of have this stream like of almost unsavory kind of characters who end up delivering the the people, at least in the Old Testament, particularly in Judges, uh, kind of like the some of those old Westerns like Shane, you know, who kind of have a past. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, so it, so what's about that? I mean, it, it, I don't want to psychologize it, but there does seem to be kind of this rough edge that is necessary to both be kind of bold enough to hold to uh, the commitment to the Lord, but also like uh, willing to be kind of sullied themselves. And and you, you, you kind of get this, this even with our Lord, though he... Um, though he didn't sully himself in in the sense of uh, he was tempted but without sin, uh, he does allow himself to be sullied by others, in the sense that you know he eats with tax collectors and sinners. He does the thing that is unexpected. Um, is is there a kind of a carryover? Maybe not a one for one kind of ratio, but. Is there, so, is there a carryover, and then what does that teach us, or how does that inform us in how we um, uh, live out our faith here now? Well, the reality is it's not just then he gathers tax collectors and sinners or the, the crude people of judges. Or we are the same crude people. Mm-hmm. This is important to remind ourselves. I mean, who are the 12 that he picks as disciples? I mean, <laughs> look at that crowd. And look at Paul and his background and look at, Mm -hmm. so you can go through and see biblically this was always happening and it's still happening. Look at some of the guys he chooses to be preachers in today's world and faithful Mm -hmm. ones. I mean, I'm kind of a jerk. I don't like people. There's a certain edge to these uh, folks, right? It's kind of like a rough edge, kind of like a, I I can't really put – put my finger or my thumb on exactly what the word is, but there's an edginess and not for the sake of being edgy. It's, it's like a real, um, like you said, kind of almost jerkiness <laughs> that I hate that, to use that, that term, but there's a sort of the world looks at you certainly that way. Yeah. I mean, it, what did they say about Jesus? Not only they ate with tax collectors and sinners, but they like to say, Oh yeah, he's Joseph's son. You know, ah. I mean, think of how they talked about Jephthah. Oh, yeah, the prostitute's son. You know, Dad messed up with that. Mm-hmm. And I think there's always some of that goes on in terms of the the world's judgment on the faithful. The mm-hmm. world would look at Jephthah and say, this guy is a horrible person. There's no way he should be saved. He can't really be an example of faith, the world would say. And yet, when you look at it through the eyes of the scriptures, you see this guy, yes, he's edgy, as you're saying, I guess. I will take that term. Uh, he's certainly out there, uh, rough, confrontational, definitely. I mean, mm-hmm. he's going to be confrontational in this narrative. He goes right to the heart of it with the Gileadites and says, hey, you guys hated me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Why do you want me back? Yeah. But now with the Ammonites... He's going to do much the same thing because you have, um, what do you have against me? That you've come against to fight me and my land. You know, mm-hmm. He just boldly says to the Ammonite king, what are you doing here? Yeah. And uh, so they have this dialogue then back and forth via messengers mm-hmm. um, where the Ammonite king says, well, Israel took away my land when they came up out of Egypt. And from the Arnon, as far as the, now, therefore, give us those lands peacefully, <laughs> just peaceably. I mean, just give them back to us. We don't have to fight. Just give them back. And I love the way Jephthah then sort of gives him a sermon in the verses ahead, because he, he says, um, 
Israel didn't take away the land of Moab. And then he goes and recounts the his history, beginning with Israel came up from Egypt. They walked through the wilderness as far as the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Uh, so the, all that time they spent in Kadesh Barnea, of course, we remember mm -hmm. those days. Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom. He goes through the story of how the, these people wouldn't let them go through the land. Um, so in like manner, they went to the king of Moab, but he wouldn't consent. So Israel stayed in Kadesh for a while, and then they went and bypassed all of that. And you know, the reason they bypassed Edom, it was the relationship there and why they did that. And the Moabites, of course, are going to, we're going to say more about them in a minute. But uh, so they go east of the land of Moab and they encamp on the other side that Arnon then. And so they don't go across the border because Arnon was a border of uh, Moab. And so then they send messengers and now comes the great remembrance to Sion, king of the Amorites. Now, you know, Sion and Og both come up, of course, in the Psalms. Mm -hmm. These stories are pretty important. How Sion defies, and uh, he doesn't trust Israel to pass through his territory. And because of that, he's going to get slaughtered. I mean, the little stories matter. Knowing your little Bible stories along the way. Mm -hmm. help to fill in gaps. The fact that it's going to come up here as the story is being recounted by Jephthah, he knows the stories of Israel. He's not some guy who just, you know, son of a harlot, he doesn't know anything. He's got these stories of Israel down in his head, which immediately tells you this is another mark of his faith because Israelites were supposed to know uh these encounters. They were to be handed down from generation to generation. And he knows it. So he brings up Sion, which of course the Ammonites should know about too. He's the king of Heshbon and says he doesn't do it though. And so he gathers his people together, he fights against it, and then comes the important phrase here. And the Lord God of Israel delivered Sion and all his people into the hand of Israel and they defeated them. Now, at the end of the encounters that he's going to have with the Ammonites, the same phrase is going to happen mm -hmm. into the hand now of, uh, of Jephthah, because mm -hmm. the Lord does that. It's what had happened all along, even in these battles here, really, in the book of Judges or the book of Joshua, or back in the, every time there's an encounter, it's the Lord who delivers into the hands. Mm -hmm. The Lord delivers into the hands of David his enemies. And he, yeah. so that this is such a little phrase. Sometimes we kind of jump over things like you said at the beginning. There's a we just go, oh, of course, the Lord God of Israel does. No, it's really key to remembering this is part of the faith of this man, Jephthah, who firmly believes that God was the one who delivered them and caused the defeat to happen. So Israel gains possession. Now, it also goes back, he's remembering not only this, I would argue, he's also remembering that when they are told these lands will be theirs, of course, we know that in the days of the spies, they wouldn't believe those words, right. but um, he, he tells them, you're going to go into this land, and I'm going to give you all this land. I'm going to hand your enemies over to you. You're going to destroy, this land is all going to be yours. And so he's got that in his mind too. He knows the history of Israel. He believes that history. Because again, it's the faith is not just some spiritualistic nonsense. It's rooted in historical details. Mm -hmm. you, know, you can't just turn it into a spiritualized bunch of hooey. Mm -hmm. It is, I mean, the, the account of Christ's death and resurrection is historical. It's there. It's the foundation. And it's the ultimate victory where the Lord hands the God of heaven and earth, hands over everything to his son then that he sends in the flesh. And by his death, he purchases the kingdom. So he goes off to war and wins the battle. He's a better Jephthah, even though maybe people don't want to think of him as being a better Jephthah. 
it is ultimately in Christ that we see the perfect Jephthah who delivers mm -hmm. the enemies, uh, delivers us from the enemies. So this war episode, oh, you know, this goes to your, oh, I saw you had the guy on. Oh, why can't I think of his name right now? Talking about hymns and oh, yeah, the Carl warlike Hess. hymns. Yeah, I mean, always good. That's one of the things I not only like the Old Testament, hymns go well with them because good hymnody always has that flavor of war. And the Old Testament is always hinting at the battle that's going on. I mean, we heard the previous chapter, all those gods, and yet God was the one who had given them all these lands. And now, recounting the truth, Jephthah says this to his enemies, now the Lord of God has, the Lord God of Israel has dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel. Should you then possess it? <laughs> I mean, in other words, who do you think you are? Yeah. That the better thing happens when he says, will you not possess whatever Hamash, your God, gives you to possess? I, so in other words, come on. Now, I do like this connection too. Who's the most famous Gileadite? Oh. I know, I'm throwing just totally out of nowhere because I wasn't thinking of this until yesterday. I have to admit my weakness. Okay, well, tell me because I'm well, drawn a he's blank. Well, he's, he's a Tishbite. That's your second hint. Um, Elisha? Elijah. Elijah. I always get those so, two confused. And remember, <laughs> I know. Elijah, of course, has this confrontation in which he watches and kind of laughs and enjoys the fact that the Baal prophets are cutting themselves and everything. It, anytime you get this sort of, okay, let's see what your God can do. <laughs> this is always good in the Old Testament. They just, come on, show me what you can do. And, oh, it, this is another makes my mind jump to another account, a sort of uh, one of those great encounters with your Germanic relatives. Because, of course, the famous story is about your tree hugger relatives. They love to worship the trees, but along came St. Boniface, yeah. cuts down the big tree and says, okay, what's your God going to do to me? Or, back to skipping back to a previous judge, Gideon, there was the case where He's told to destroy the false god, even you know, the one that was right by his father's house. And the people get all angry, and his father actually says, well, did the god do anything to Gideon? And then he gets a, you know, gets his uh, other name. But So it's a frequent occurrence in the Old Testament, happens in the New Testament, we could argue too. And we could argue it's really going on around us in the world today. I mean, mm -hmm. I know Christians always say, oh, we're losing, the world's defeating us, blah, blah, blah. The, the reality is the church continues to have faithful preachers out there, and people still get baptized, and you still have people receiving the sacrament. And the church endures from generation to generation, even though it always seems like we're losing. Mm -hmm. what, are, what are your gods doing for you, you can say to the world? We're still yeah. here. <laughs> or to quote. Yeah, I mean, rock and roll song. I'm it doesn't all. It doesn't always seem like we're losing, right? I mean, there are times when it seems like we're at a kind of a, a, a greater mass um, than right. others. But there are times when it seems like, oh man, we're getting beat up, and 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 that shouldn't cause us to to lose hope. It should cause us to get back up and keep keep fighting the way that Saint Paul did when you know he. Every time he went to a new town, it seems like he was getting thrown in prison or getting stoned or beaten, and he gets up and does it all again. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't want to be a downer about it. Quite frankly, the worst thing that happens sometimes is we think we're winning all the time. Oh, yeah. And then <laughs> that's when you really get problems. Yeah, you can get so complacent. So you got to beware of both things, yes, Yeah. which we did for a while. Um, yeah. So anyway – you have this giving credit to God, and then he even says, you know, whatever the Lord our God takes possession of before us, we'll possess. Mm -hmm. We'll be content, in other words, of what he gives us. Yeah. Now, he and introduces... that's kind of reminiscent him. of Daniel and his friends, too. Yeah, that's true. I mean, you've got the very same thing. His friends who say they won't eat the food that the king wants them to eat, and 
So it's not an argument for vegetarianism. It's an argument simply for the fact that you eat the foods that are not involved with idols. Right. And rely on the good thing. Um, so then he preaches a little bit more here. The sermon goes on, and he does what sermons should always do. He's bit, sermons should always, of course, recount the scriptures and God's way of dealing with his people, and they should make that clear. So he says, are you better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? And here again, an important knowing your Bible stories kind of stuff. That, of course, is that whole Balaam, you know, he hires Balaam to try mm-hmm. to curse the people. You have him moving around the camp. He can't curse the people. You even get the great promise that uh, is engaged uh, with uh, in Matthew 2 and the coming of the Magi, of course, of uh, the star. So all that goes on knowing the story. So he's bringing out stories, and it, he doesn't talk about the evil side of that either. Um, the fact that, of course, right after that, the Israelites simply give themselves up and go wild in a, you know, an orgy with the boys and girls of Moab because they do all kinds of evil sexual sin, even up by the uh, tabernacle, where, of course, then you have the ultimate shoving the spear through the guy, the couple, as they're mm-hmm. uh, engaged in their activities. So there's a lot going on in the sermon, you could argue. Now, did he ever strive against Israel? Did he ever fight against them? In other words, did did Balak do that? No, he kind of realized he had to go home, and he wasn't going to win. So Israel was there for a long time. Why didn't you come and take these cities back if your gods were here the whole time? We've been here 300 years. And so I have not sinned against you. You wronged me by fighting against me. And then he comes back to the confession again. May the Lord, the judge. Okay, gonna, we'll put it in his court. He's heard my vows before him. Let him be the judge. Am I his faithful servant? Will he use me to deliver the people? And let him decide this. And let him decide whose land this is, you could argue. Mm-hmm. Um, render this judgment between the children of Israel and the people of Ammon. So with this, a judgment and a place of judgment, a mishpat, is going to take place. And the decision will be up to the God of Israel. Mm-hmm. But here... Again, we come back to hearing. The people of Ammon did not heed. They didn't listen to the words which Jephthah gave them. They just, they want to hear their own words. Whereas Jephthah spoke his words before the Lord, Jephthah said, we want to, you know, the the thing had been, they want to hear between them, hearing of the words. Mm -hmm. Uh, Here, there's no hearing when it comes to the Ammonite king and his people. And at that point, after he's gone through the history, recited the words about this, given that message, now they don't listen. So the Spirit of the Lord then comes upon Jephthah. Now, that is part of Judges, this whole Spirit of the Lord coming upon is repeated again and again. And he passes through Gilead and Manasseh and passed through Mitzpah of Gilead. And from Mitzpah of Gilead, he advanced toward the people of Ammon. So he yeah. places that remind him to of God's history with Israel. You're sort of having him go through locations in which they think about how God had spoken to the people. In fact, the people of Manasseh had looked at the, back in Deuteronomy, or excuse me, numbers already, they had looked at the land here in Gilead. They had said, this would be great land for our cattle, for our you know, mm-hmm. our sheep for grazing, for we really want to have this land. And at first they had said, we'll just stay here. And of course, you know, the anger of the Lord begins to be kindled by their resistance and they have to be called to repentance and they have to hear the Lord's words and they do listen. And they end up then sending all their troops across the river to fight with their brethren. But that's a another thing historically that's in the background with the Gilead and these locations that are going on and 
what's going to happen here. You're really getting details that should prompt the memory of Israel and the memory of people yet today who hear God's word of trusting in the Lord because he's the one always who delivers. Mm-hmm. There's no other deliverer. Be Jephthah was a mighty man of valor, but he himself recognized without the Lord on his side, he had nothing. So now you get to Jephthah's moment that everybody likes to pick on. <laughs> so b- before we head down into that, um, y- you've been bringing up this uh, a hearing, listening, uh, and judgment. And there's something that Peterson had said when we were I had made an offhanded comment about Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane saying, you know, not my will, but yours be done when he's kind of pouring out his heart saying, if this may pass. And I had said something like, you know, there's a sense of which in which he's uh, um, asking for another way. And he said, and Peterson said, I don't think he is. He said he's actually just asking the Lord to hear and send help and aid and encouragement because uh, he sends the angels, you know, just like after um, his battle with Satan in the the wilderness. Is there also a sense where he, where when the people of God, particularly in the Old Testament, say something like, uh, and the Lord will deliver us, and they're just making statements of this. They're expecting the Lord to hear and to do that, right there. So it's not just a statement of confession or profession before those enemies, but also uh, a prayer of request to send aid. I'd say yes. I mean, there is a. You see this especially in the Psalms, where Psalms are prayers, and what do they tend to do? Weave together the statements directly about God's Mm -hmm. deliverance in the past, for example, etc. I think even in recounting with messengers these words to um, Mm -hmm. the king of Ammon, he's also saying to his own troops, look, here it is. We call out to the one we need. We We went before the Lord in Mitzpah, I spoke my words before him. He's the one that we have to trust. And indeed, you're right. It is calling out. It's Let's say it's like the liturgy. What yeah. do we do? We speak the words God gave us to him, mm-hmm. and then we listen to the words that come back, which are his words as well. Yeah. So it becomes not about – sometimes we say something quite plainly, and yet it is also at the same time the reality of we're – saying it before God and saying, be faithful to what you've declared. Yeah, be the judge. Hear my yeah, be case. The judge. Be the judge. Make a judgment between us. Not between me and God, but between me and my enemies. Right. I think that's always important. To keep. And so, okay. go ahead. No, no, no. Um, so, this, so you get this sense, right, where he is making this statement, and it's a cry for help, and then immediately the Spirit of the Lord descends upon Jephthah. Yes. He leads so he him. gets the help. It's, it's much like you get the baptism of our Lord, and what happens right away? Mm-hmm. The Spirit of the Lord leads him off into the wilderness to do battle with Satan yeah. and the temptation. Mm-hmm. And then at the end, and the angels gather around him mm-hmm. to go back to your recounting what happens in the garden also. Yeah, and so, I, I don't think Jesus is. A, I tend to agree with Peterson. I hate to do that, uh, but <laughs> well, I mean, I've never really thought about it, and when he said that, it made total sense to me. Um, yeah, I was really thinking. Much for that. like it's like when you get all that discussion of the will of God in terms of uh, Romans, and that you'll have it thrown in, but it's also a cry out for His mercy. Because we know ultimately what is his will. Well, as Paul, of course, stresses, the, the will of God is to save. You know, mm-hmm. That's really what he wants to do. Yeah. And so we want that will to be there, to save us from our enemies, to save us from uh, death and the grave, to save us from all the things that surround us in this world. Okay. So now we get to the tragic vow. And he does this with the spirit of the Lord having descended upon him. What's, I know. what's going with that? Well, 
I'm going to go back to the Romans thing. Okay. Here, you got the spirit, right? But you do what you don't want to do at times. And so here he does something absolute. One moment he's got the spirit of the Lord, he's going to go out and do the battle and win. And yet here is his weak side. His sinful flesh is still there. If you will indeed deliver the people of Ammon into my hands, and it sounds like such a pious thing too. We say these nice pious promises to God. You know, people do this all the time. If, you know, God, you do this, you deliver it, you know, then I'll do this. But God really doesn't want us making deals. Mm -hmm. Most of our deals are kind of ridiculous anyway, but um, I'm going to be better at this or better at that, you know, because you just get me through this, God. Um, Rather than just saying, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, sort of like the guy that Jesus points out, we like to say, well, you know, be merciful, and I will now offer this in return. And he does this. He says, whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me. Now, he doesn't reflect on anything. He just lets it flow out. When I return in peace from the people of Ammon shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. I mean, yeah, it could have been a, a goat. It could have been a lamb. It could have been a chicken. I don't <laughs> coming out of the door instead it's his daughter and mm-hmm. you know he but that comes back later so now he just goes off to the battle then and the lord delivers them into his hands the lord doesn't say well that was such a stupid vow i'm not going to do it <laughs> no he's still dealing with a man of faith who's weak like each one of us you know how many pastors could go through you know and list their weaknesses we kind of know them well and we know when we've been foolish. We know when we made errors with our people. We know when we made false promises. We know all those things. And yet the Lord uses us to, you know, comfort the sick, to bring the sacraments, to do all these things. And I'm not really worthy to do those things. And yet he does them through me. And Jephthah is that guy. He's his instrument. And so this instrument, Jephthah, is the one who delivers. He defeats them from a war as far as men, 20 cities. I mean, they just went from city to city, <laughs> knocking them out mm-hmm. um, with so, a very um, great slaughter. There's some debate, uh, uh, particularly people, within old Missouri, um, whether he actually kept this vow. I mean, if you read the English translation, it looks pretty clear that he did. But there is this debate that, he, you know, God would not have accepted this as a as an actual sacrifice and vow. Um, well, I mean, what's your take on all that? Well, would God want him to sacrifice his daughter? The answer is no. I mean, <laughs> read the laws and mm-hmm. read how he distinguishes Israel from the false worship around him. But again, remember we heard about all these gods and the things, the thoughts that were in the people's heads in the background. So Jephthah comes to his house. His daughter comes out. She's got the timbrels and dancing. She's rejoicing. Uh, the emphasis on this being his only child. He doesn't have a son or other daughter. This is mm-hmm. it. His only daughter. And she's a virgin daughter. And he sees her, and immediately he tears his clothes in repentance. You know, this. he realizes the grief is upon him. Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You are among those who trouble me. (laughs) Now, that's kind of a strange thing to say, isn't it? Mm -hmm. But for I have given my word to the Lord, and I cannot go back on it. So he's got this idea in his head. If I promised it to the Lord, I absolutely have to do it. It's a pious thought, but he is ignoring the other parts of the law. But we also know that these are the days to jump forward to Samuel, the young Samuel, that the word of the Lord was rare in those days. Yeah. To remind ourselves that every man is doing what was right in his own eyes. Even Jephthah falls into Mm -hmm. that trap. I made this promise. I've got to keep it. Mm -hmm. Now, it's, you know, there's that sorrow, that grief. Why'd you have to be the one who came out the door? She reinforces it. My father, if you have given your word to the Lord, do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. 
Now, we had all that hearing stuff earlier, of course. Now you have coming out of the mouth. Uh, before he was standing before the Lord making a vow. Here it's a different vow, the vow of giving up his daughter. Uh, but she approves of it because the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the people of Ammon. She's misguided too. Mm-hmm. She thinks, okay, this has to happen. He made the promise. God wouldn't want him to break his promise. But there are such things as just absolute foolish promises that we make in the world. Yes. We we have to repent of those too. But in our confusion, we don't always do those things. And uh, in this case, it's tragic. It does have to remind us, the story goes well with reminding us when Jesus says, let your no be no and your yes be yes. Or yes be yes and no by no. Which way is it? Anyway, uh, you know, making vows is something you should avoid for as much as possible. Um, This is just something that we tend to make foolish vows about. Now, there are good vows to make, you know, as we teach in the catechism, vows when you when you promise to be faithful to your country and you know carry out the duties of an, uh, you know in the military or a police officer or something like that for protecting the your citizens. These are good promises to make, but you know we should be we should limit those kinds of things that we do in the world rather than making them just commonly coming out of our mouth. So he falls into a deadly trap. She says, well, it has to be that way. And yet she says, let me go and wander on the mountains and bewail my virginity, my friends and I. So she's accompanied by her fellow virgins because what in Israel can be worse? You could say in a certain sense in the world. I mean, a woman who has no children is a is a harsh thing to happen. And in this mm-hmm. case, that she never had a husband she never, but especially in Israel, this means no sons, and sons are the line of the promise, and that ultimately there will be the male child who will come. Mm-hmm. So when she's mourning, she's also reflecting, this is my argument, which I can't prove, but she's reflecting back to the fact that there is to be one who's going to give birth, one woman chosen to give birth to the one who will crush that as a serpent. Now, it does work out well because actually there are words in this text that link us back to um, Genesis 3.15, even the idea of the distress I mentioned earlier, um, that word is back there. So there's some language that you know, I think supports it. I can't prove this, and I wouldn't, you know, obviously this is not like one of those passages that the scriptures stand or fall on, but it is, I think, she at least realizes what's going on that the virginity and the not having a child, a male child in particular. I mean, her father, after all, had neither son nor daughter other than her. And as I pointed out earlier, at the very end of this narrative, the next judge is from Bethlehem. Mm-hmm. So I think this virgin thing. Now, this also sets the ground for the last weird story in Judges, you know, the whole thing about finding wives for the Benjamites. Yeah. You know, the, the importance of having that happen. Yeah, I know, it's total chaos in Israel. you got a guy who's the leader of Israel, or the Gileadites, we'll just say that, because they were broken into different, and he is going to offer up his daughter. And at the end, you've got, of course, things are as bad there as they were in uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, it turns out, in those last chapters of judges. So all kinds of evil men doing what is right in their own eyes, just as, well, I mean, look at the world around us, particularly today, doing whatever's right in their own eyes. I was just out in California and you see all this <laughs> craziness. There's enough craziness in Milwaukee. It's even crazier out there. And it's just kind of, you know, all around us on every hand. Mm-hmm. People who you would think could it used to be, you would say, oh, there's some people are just down to earth, and then there's crazy people. Now the crazy people seem to be the dominant. <laughs> Is it, you know, I'm sure there's more who are good at common sense, but it just, you look around you into this world, and you see the crazy way men have descended into all kinds of false opinions, 
And you say, then you look at the church. I mean, you have a whole bunch of people in the church who are relatively devout, who talk like their relatives who have died are angels, (laughs) which, you know, isn't part of the life of the church or the teaching of the church, but they... This goes on, this sort of corruption of the truth, even when they have the truth. Mm-hmm. Yet there's all these other things are in our heads around us. And part of it is the world. I mean, the world, after all, thinks everybody becomes an angel at this point, it seems. I see those t- T-shirts about the you know relatives who've died or angels and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. It just, it's everywhere. So anyway, I launched off to the side on that. But the confusion of the land and the confusion that always haunts us, even in the church today. So she goes away. She bewails her virginity. She had known no man. And then the whole thing of the custom in Israel. This is why I think it has, nothing becomes a custom if you don't have a solid historical event behind it. Mm -hmm. It's, It's not just some mythical thing. She's sacrificed by her father. And this is a horrible thing. They remember it every year as being horrible. They lament it. They lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite. It becomes mm-hmm. part of that and should keep them away, of course, from Hamash and all those gods. Of course, what happens in the days of Solomon? Marries all those women. Yeah. And all those gods are back at the top again, aren't they? So, you know, who knows how long this went on, this you know, lamenting the daughter of Jephthah. Did it continue for quite a while? Did it just sort of, you know, after three or four years, fade out of the system? But it clearly is recorded as something becomes a custom, a repeated action. Mm-hmm. For four days, the virgin daughters would remember this. And Why four days? It w- what's the significance to the numerology there? Well, I like four as being a number of the gospel, especially because you've had the virgin daughters. But again, can you prove anything by that four? No, I just like it for storytelling. (laughs) For recounting it, I mean, the four days remind us of this and that ultimately there is to be one born of a virgin who's going to be the redeemer of the world. This messed up world, messed up people like Jephthah and his daughter, messed up people like each one of us are going to be those that Christ redeems by his own death. I mean, why does God die? He's innocent, and yet the world cries out for his death. And in the death of the innocent one, we have the atoning for our sins. It must be this way, Jesus says. Mm -hmm. It must happen for men like Jephthah and Abraham and Moses and each one of us. Men of faith cling to the fact that God's going to send somebody to redeem us from our own stupidity. Jephthah saw, on the one hand, that and would live with that himself. And Samson would live with that. And Gideon and his, you know, Gideon will see how evil his own son's son Abimelech is. Um, The evils around us in the world. And to know the reality of the need for redemption the one who atones for our sin, and the solid historical, not just as an example, but the reality of the need for this to be done for us, because we are still every day in need of repenting before God and relying upon that atoning sacrifice of Christ. There's no other way. So Okay, I went off on that for a while. So what... <laughs> So what follows on after this is Jephthah's conflict with Ephraim and then his account of his death, um, at least the recounting that he died and then was buried in Gilead. How does this conflict with Ephraim? Well, I think it points out not only is Jephthah confused, but here's his own brethren, the Ephraimites on the other side of the river. Um, They They seem to be looking at this with greedy eyes and saying, hey, you know, those people of Gilead, you know, they're the ones who stayed behind across the river. They're the ones who aren't quite, you know, and we just have this little sector. Remember, Ephraim has just a tiny little bit of land. Mm-hmm. And Gilead is a big region. And it also is a region that you've got 
you know, grazing and all the rest. So there's sort of that idea, okay, we should have a, a part in that and we've got an excuse, you know. So they think it's a good time to go over and they say to Jephthah, why did you cross over to fight against the people of Ammon and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house down on you with fire. Now, interestingly enough, that's going to come up in the Samson narrative too, where you have the burning the fox's tails, you have the threats on um, the household of uh, the first wife. Right. There's that threat on the household that they'll burn down the house. In the end, of course, the house does get burnt down, but it's the judgment back to the judgment being carried out by God's instrument, Samson, in that case. Here, Ephraim, um, with its ideas of getting the land, figures, we'll just come over, make some threats, and get this land for ourselves. Well, my people and I were in a great struggle, Jephthah says, and I called you, and you did not deliver me out of their hands. Now, this kind of calling on the other parts of Israel happens again and again in the book of Judges. They don't always come to each other's aid. Israel was a group of tribes, and they don't always come to the aid of their brothers, which is, of course, from the beginning with the 12 sons, I've already mentioned Joseph, the whole, you know, they don't readily come to the aid. And so Jephthah says, hey, you weren't there, and you didn't come and deliver us out of the hands. We did this on our own. We're sort of the outcasts. So when I saw that you would not deliver me, I took my life in my hands and crossed over against the people of Ammon. And the, here it is again. The Lord delivered them into my hand. So this is now the third time that's happened. Plus, you had the earlier reference to how the Lord delivered the land into the hand of Israel. So that's four, right? Did I miscount? It's three nope. or four. Yeah. Just the emphasis. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? And there's really not an answer there. It's mm-hmm. just their own desires. So Jephthah gathers the men of Gilead and goes into battle. And they win. Of course, the Lord has given them into their, into his hand again. And uh, we're the fugitives of Ephraim, among the Ephraimites, and among the Manassites. We've got our own area over here kind of by ourselves, and we have to defend our lands. So they seize the fords of the Jordan, which takes you back again, remembering the importance of the fords of the Jordan going across and you know, conquering the, um, conquering the city. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, of course, also remind you of what's going to come eventually, since you have to think about Gilead and Elijah. And Elijah takes after the encounter at Mount Carmel, remember he slaughters all those priests down by the fords mm-hmm. of the river. Now, it's not the Jordan there in that case, but you still get them down by the river. And uh, so they go down and they want to escape, get back to their land. And they'd ask them if they were Ephraimites. Well, of course they wanted to say no. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Whoever's coming down by the river is going to say no. And then they have this way. They used a clever little way of, say, Shibboleth. But they couldn't say it. They could only say Sibboleth. Now, Shibboleth also refers to streams and a running stream. So, kind of interesting. You're by the ford. You've, you're mentioning, and anytime you think of water, you should also think of baptism. Um, because, really, baptism is the great witness between us and God where, you know, we even say we're, we flee the devil and all his works and all his ways. We say that's what we want to do, right? We pray daily that we will do that, that we will return to our baptism, trust in the Lord, and the waters of baptism gave us these gifts and uh, gave us our inheritance. But the Ephraimites can't say it. They're all identified, and they end up taking and killing them there. And 42,000 Ephraimites. I mean, it's not just a little amount. This is huge amounts of people. And this was all part of the way that God the judge is judging Israel too for its own worship of false gods. Now, did they always remember that? No. This is the problem. Mm -hmm. It's sort of all through history. 
you know, Luther, I know, rambles and we like to say too much, but that whole thing where he goes off on the Germans and says that a great judgment. And what happens? Eventually, of course, you've got the um, 30 Years War, but you've also got the World War One, World War Two. If this isn't a call for people to repent, the great devastation, the death on every hand, the, the reality of how many, you know, towns disappeared in some of these events, just the way you have these things happen again and again, um, we should all see marks of the call to repentance. Ephraim is not repented, really. They find the judge, judge, the God who had given his spirit to Jephthah, now wreaks a judgment. And all Israel should say, stop doing what's right in your own eyes. It only leads to disaster. Mm-hmm. 42,000 have perished here. And yet it goes on with the account and more disorder in Israel. So all of us need to see the marks around us. All these things, and I said it was craziness, but really it's a call simply for the world to repent. You really want to say that some of these things are true? Now, you elect a guy who's doddering and old and can't hardly make his way to a stage, and yet you think that's a good thing, and that's a good guy to put in charge? Can God use a guy like that? I'm never going to say he can't. But instead, you know, you have to also say, maybe it's a call for repentance that we can't seem to get somebody in charge who at least has, you know, is competent. But that's judgmental of me to say, but it's kind of true. (laughs) And uh, so then Jephthah, then you have the sudden conclusion, which often is the case with all these narratives. Jephthah judged Israel six years. He's only six years he was a judge. Mm-hmm. Not seven. Now six, I, I like six because it's always a reminder of one short of the Sabbath, a reminder of six the day, sixth day of creation is, of course, the creation of man. The sixth day is the death of Christ. Six years here that he ruled and became really a, in the time of great chaos. And then he dies and he's buried among the cities of Gilead, which... Again, burial being an important thing. He's buried. His body is placed in the ground. They honor him. They say, here, here is a leader. And they put him in the ground. And because he's buried in the sit out there, people can go and tell the story about him. See, here's Gilead's grave. And this is what Gilead did for the people. Or not Gilead, Jephthah. <laughs> I switched gears there, didn't I? Jephthah, here's Jephthah's grave. It's here in the heart of that. And remember what he did. He confessed the God of Israel, who brought us out of Egypt, who gave us this land. We did not earn it. Rather, he gave us this land, defeating our enemies, putting it in our hands. So the narrative, I think, yes, there's the vow that everybody likes to talk about. I think let's look at Jephthah and see this way of faith. The fact that he was born, yes, of a harlot. But you know what? He knew the history of Israel. Mm -hmm. He was the one God set apart. He did have the Spirit of God, even though he made a foolish decision. I mean, the Spirit of God was on Samson, and what does he do? He goes down to uh, see the woman and decides, I want that Philistine woman. Now, that seems like a silly thing to do if you've got the Spirit of God on you, and yet these things are the way that God used him to bring judgment on the Philistines. So yeah. uh, by human standards, which is what we often want to put, it doesn't always make sense. But I think in the way that you have to see men of faith always struggle, Jephthah was one of those. And Jephthah is this chosen instrument raised up who does this. The virgin daughter can help us recall Eventually, there must be the virgin by whom Christ is born into the world. Mm -hmm. And the next judge, being from Bethlehem, should help us focus on that. Oh, yes, there needs to be one yet to come. Bethlehem, of course, was also the place where who died? Rachel. Oh, that's right. Yes. She she dies there. And uh, so you've got all these sort of biblical connections you can swim around in when you're talking about Jephthah. And yes, go harsh on him for fulfilling it. It was kind of foolish. But then again, 
I did some dumb things along the way as a pastor. I'm not going to reveal those. <laughs> not talking about them. But the just those moments when you cross the line. Mm-hmm. Jephthah did. It was a horrible line to cross. And yet, God continued to use him. And he judged the people for six years. This weak man was still the one that believed, trusted in God, and God used him. And so he does with lots of pastors. He does it with lots of laity and congregations where they're struggling. Again and again, throughout the world, God raises up people like Jephthah. So that's my bit, I guess. Yeah, good. Uh, Well, and always remembering that the Lord delivers us. It's moving forward with that confidence that we can actually say out loud, you know, to those who oppose us or those who oppose the Lord, the Lord will deliver us. And yeah. that should give us courage, uh, confidence, and even encouragement along the way. And again, the fact that again and again in that narrative, it's the Lord delivers into his hands. I think you also should reflect on the word of Christ from the cross. Into your hands, I commit my spirit. Ultimately, that's the hands that matter. Indeed. Thank you so much for your time and and your insight at taking us through these Old Testament accounts to look at it from uh, a slightly different angle, looking at it more deeply and encouraging us to not just breeze through it, but to see the Lord's plan and the greater picture that runs throughout the scriptures. So thank you, Carl. You're welcome.